Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom and Dawn Lister of Anahata Yoga Center. We are a yoga studio based in Lee-on-Sea, Essex in the UK. Today we are joined by Suzanne Alderson. Suzanne is the founder of an incredible group called Parenting, Men Parenting for Mental Health, which is a charity supporting parents of children um, who are struggling with, mental, with poor mental health. It's a digital community um, on Facebook who has over 15,000 members worldwide. Suzanne is also the author of Never Let It Go, How to Parent Your Children Through Mental Illness. Suzanne is a mother of two and we are privileged, honored and grateful to have you here today, Suzanne. Really looking forward to this really important conversation. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dawn. I'm honoured and grateful to be here. Oh, good. Um, let's start off by checking in with each other. So, Daniel, you've had a few days off, you lucky thing. Not in the sun, at home. Definitely, without... not, definitely not in the sun. <laughs> How have you been? What have you been up to? Um, so, yeah, I needed a bit of downtime I needed to switch off away from screens and away from technology um, so I think I've had about four or five days of just a very simple life um, we're reconditioning the garden at the moment and so I've pulled out a couple of trees took the roots out the out the mud been to the dump about four or five times so um feeling very kind of earthy and <laughs> rest, rested, although it doesn't sound like it's very restful. It was quite hard work, but actually between that, I've been doing quite a lot of kind of just switching off, just doing my yoga nidra practice, doing meditation, going for nice walks along the beach in the rain. So yeah, just taking care of myself. And how are you today, Dawn? Yeah, I'm okay. I, I was... Um... We were just chatting before the podcast about what a challenging week it's been. It's been a week where that began with um, International Women's Day. Yay, power to the women. And then descended into something quite different. <laughs> something quite different. We've had the horrific kickback from the Harry and Meghan interview, which was hard to look at. And then there was the tragic death of... Sarah Everson, Everson is it Everson, wasn't it? In, um, yeah, and the feet, the the comeback from that, and um, the outpouring of grief that I've witnessed personally, and I'm feeling myself, and it does feel like grief. I feel like this wall of grief for everything that I've experienced as a woman throughout my life, and the women that I know and love, and the women, the generations before me. It kind of feels like it's all come to a bit of a head, and. I'm trying not to be reactive. I'm trying to take time to be wise and sit with my feeling and walk walk through the grief um, and honour it and uh, listen to what people are saying. But also I'm seeing some really awful stuff coming my way and women's way and men's way, actually, both ways. So, um, yeah, I'm feeling a bit... I'm working hard to keep my feet on the ground and I've been doing that through my practice. I've been doing, like you, Daniel lots of yoga nidra I've been meditating I've been grounding a huge amount a huge amount of doing a lot of grounding practices so I'd be lying if I said I felt buoyant and joyful but I'm walking through um, a very healthy experience in my life I think that's, that's what I think that's what I think I am 
And we've had no Wi-Fi for a week, which has been lovely. I've really enjoyed that. <laughs> That's been the good part. No Wi-Fi. I thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> Suzanne, how are you? How, how have you been? Uh, a bit like you, Dawn, I think, just sort of reeling from the last week's events and trying to remind myself one thing I, I put out on my own social media was around that we can't caveat compassion. We have to be compassionate or by being compassionate, we need to accept everybody's experience and uh, particularly around uh, Megan's disclosure of um, suicidal intent. So that's quite a heavy um, weight, I think, to carry. But um, like you, you know, so desperately sad around all of the events um, around Sarah Everard's murder and, and what it means for, for women generally, what it means for me as a mother, what it means for my daughter, what it means for potentially her, her children, generations to come. So um, very heavy week. Um, but I like the idea of no Wi-Fi. I like the idea of walking on the beach as an Essex girl myself. I would love to come back at some point and walk on that beach. So um, in my mind now, I'm visualizing, yeah, a little wander along, um, along the sand. So uh, yeah, it, there's always a way, isn't there, out of that heaviness if we, uh, if we want to take it. Mm, that's so true. I think um, sometimes when there's a lot at one time, it does feel, and I think the fact that we're in a pandemic and everything's locked down is making it harder for everybody because there's not the usual things we would do to go and sort of um, counterbalance difficult stuff because you can't just immerse yourself just in suffering and pain because it, it, it you know, you can't, can't hold that. It's not sustainable. Um, and normally we would might go out and have a coffee or go and play tennis or something. And actually because we can't do those things and those get involved in those social interactions that might give us a different view, hear a different side to the story, hold, listen to your grief outpouring, just hold you in that space. So we're not getting that. We've got to, it's harder. It feels like everything's like magnified a hundred times. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. I think one of the, um, the things that I've learned from lockdown is about how I can find those ways, those spaces that I can feel safe in my own home as well as in my own mind. So, you know, social media detox is definitely the way to go, but equally connecting with, um, you know, digital families that I've, I've made and created of my own choosing online. And then I think rituals are really important. So for me, I have a morning ritual now around looking out at a tree out of my window and breathing and taking on some water and setting my intention for the day. Mm -hmm. And then also I've created little nurture corners, which sound um, a little bit strange, but around the house where I've got something, an object that I love that, that brings me joy um, and just putting those in little places strategically. So if I'm having a moment, I can go and go to one of them. It's, I haven't got like hundreds of them. There's like a couple on a, a few windowsills that I can just go to and just take a moment and just remind myself that, yeah, it's okay. I've got this, I can breathe through it. It's all right, so. Yeah, it's, it, uh, it's interesting that you say that, Suzanne, because before lockdown, Brian and I had, well, my husband and I had um, quite a big flood in our house. So we were, we had the opportunity to be able to kind of redesign part of the house. <laughs> so our lounge now, the only thing that's in it is a TV and our sofas and blankets and cushions and it's just our place where we just go 
and hide <laughs> and everywhere else because we're both having to work in the house at the moment he's upstairs in the office i'm downstairs in the dining room you know it's difficult because it feels like work's invaded those spaces but actually we've just got one room in our house where work doesn't come into it and it's like you can just shut the door and it's like a little kind of haven that we can just go and hide away from and it's been so important to have that haven because actually whatever happens we don't take work into there <laughs> you know and for us it just feels so important to to keep that space because while we are still locked in and you know hopefully that's going to be lifting soonish um as long as we all play by the rules <laughs> um, you know that just having that place where we can go and not have to think about anything else other than each other and it just feeling like a little safe space for us to go to feels and it feels so weird saying that about your own home but actually home's been invaded with work now hasn't it and all of these things that we you know our how our home used to be quite work free <laughs> you know it was where we came to to get away from work whereas actually now it's in the middle of our home and having to redesign home around the space that you've got and the people that are cohabiting with you and also the things that you're bringing in because you know I work in therapy my husband is a social worker so he's dealing with you know quite difficult things you know it's hard to not feel like your house has been invaded so I completely get that idea of having those little havens and places yeah definitely I love the idea though that we've been forced into choosing and we've we've actually been forced to uh, acknowledge that we have a choice about what we allow into our spaces and not just our physical spaces like you've been talking about there and I think it's been that's been really really tough hasn't it over lockdown how to how to distinguish between kind of switching off and even just leaving the house I remember reading somebody at the at the beginning of the first lockdown they actually left the house because going to work you know they needed that delineation between um you know the, the act of sitting down at their laptop just didn't feel enough to distinguish between work and home. Uh, but I think that that sense of choice that we've got about what is what happens where, and that's not just in terms of physical spaces, but in terms of maybe some of the, the labels that we, we, we give to ourselves and to other you know, situations and connections that we make with people. You saying there about you, you know, you're in the dining room. Well, you know, what, why is that the dining room? Is that because, you know, so it's, it's, it's just challenging why it's the dining room and that's okay. It's great. It's cool. You've got a dining room. I love it. Um, but it's, you know, and I think it's just being able to challenge some of the um, assumptions we make about what our roles are, what spaces should be like and, um, you know, and seeing what can come from that. So uh, I like that. Uh, I like that idea that you've got that amazing room. I can just, yeah, I'm coming round and watch tv with you and your husband absolutely it's so cozy his daniel's lounge is it's just the coziest most relaxing lounge in the world I, i'm so jealous our lounge is just chaos it's like it's a library and a bar because my husband plays whiskey and every single spirit in the planet I think his plans to work his way through them by the end of the year at this rate. But they're just, they're just, it's like literally, it's like going into an, one of those old bars in the, in, out in the countryside where there's got all the black beans and everything because we've got a bungalow like that. There's booze on all of the um, plate racks. 
And then there's a wall of books. And it's just the most unrelaxing room ever. It really is. I think want to go in there and just take everything away. I'm going to move in with you, Daniel. I might have to start renting out the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree with you guys. I think we got to make, um, I think on some level, having the choice after lockdown to go into the office or not go into the office is going to be good. It's given people more options. I just worry that, people are using their commuting time for extra working time. And actually, it should. I, I like to think that if you're going to work from home, because I work from home, I've got a little office in the garden, that it's, it gives you more freedom maybe to do other things, um, more choice, and more choice is always a good thing. Let's get to the reason we got you here to talk to us, your incredible work that you do. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you came to set up this amazing charity? I can, yeah. So in 2015, I found myself in a really extraordinary, um, well, living a really extraordinary experience that I didn't have any frame of reference for and certainly no uh, training uh, to, to cope with. Um, my daughter was 14 at the time and she was being badly bullied at school. And it, it had started probably in 2014, uh, very low level that grew and grew and grew. And the pressure on her mental health was immense by the end. Um, and it was something that I hadn't necessarily recognized. I hadn't seen the signs. I hadn't acted um, as quickly as I'd like. And we, in the end, agreed with her that, she, that we would go and speak to the school. She didn't want us to speak to the school. Um, and we went to talk to them and they said that they would move the bullies uh, from her class for the next term. And so we ended up spending a summer with her, you know, showing increasing signs of anxiety. But when we went back in September, she said to me, you know, mum, I've got this, you know, I can, I, you know, I feel really positive about this. They'll have moved them. It'll all be okay. And they hadn't moved them. They'd forgotten to move the boys. So, um, yeah, we were stuck in a situation where, you know, all of her sense of safety was taken away um, and very quickly her mental health declined to the point where she couldn't leave the house. She wasn't eating, she wasn't sleeping and she couldn't, she couldn't go to school. There was no way she was going there. And I took her to see our GP who referred her to CAMS, which is the Child Adolescent Mental Health Service. And there was a waiting list of about nine to 12 weeks. And at the time, I just couldn't see how we were going to make it through the next nine to 12 hours, if I'm honest, let alone the next nine to 12 weeks. And so I asked him what we could do. And he suggested that, you know, we came back the next week and just had a weekly session with him. And at the next uh, appointment, um, Izzy asked if she could go in on her own. And that was something we were very open about what was going on. We chatted about everything, but she asked if she could go in on her own. And um, I obviously agreed. And then she came out with the doctor who told me to go head home and he'd give me a ring. And that phone call really changed the whole of our lives because he said that she had a plan to end her life imminently. And she disclosed to him that if they hadn't gone, we hadn't gone to see him on that day, that she would have acted on that plan and she'd would have um, taken an overdose. And that was just 
I mean, completely blindsided us as parents because you go from your child's having some struggles and they're having some behavioral kind of not behavioral issues in them, but you kind of feel that they're behavioral. You don't necessarily, I certainly didn't see that she had mental health per se that needed to be nurtured and cared for. And suddenly you've gone from, you know, we're kind of trotting along and I'll make this okay. And then boom, you know, you have a suicidal child. I mean, that was just something that absolutely rocked me to the core, scared me just so much, just the thought that we were going to lose her. And it was, yeah, it was a very, very trying time on many levels, emotionally as parents, you know, firstly, that sense that you may lose your child. Mm. Secondly, um, as, as people, you know, the shame of it, uh, mm. the isolation of it, the fear. Um, and then as parents as well, you know, what, what do we do? How did we get here? What, what do we do wrong? How can we fix this? Mm. And what I found was that there was no real support. She had fantastic care. Um, but we didn't get any kind of support. There was no, there was not even a sense that we were part of the solution. Mm. Um, aside from our own needs to, you know, deal with our emotional kind of the emotional fallout for us, um, so that we were in a better place so we could help her. This isn't just about, you know, some indulgent kind of, oh, what about me? It was more about how could we make ourselves stronger and more resilient so that we could help her more and help her to recover. But we weren't really part of that conversation. And so I remember sitting in her room one night. It was, it reminded me of when, you know, you have a newborn and you're up in the middle of the night and you think you're the only person in the world that's awake. And I sat there, um, she'd had a rough day. I was sure that she was going to um, harm herself. And I sat there thinking, 4 a.m., I can't be the only person sitting in their child's room. I hope I am, but I don't think I will be. And that sort of element of, um, isolation was seemed to be magnified in that moment and I just thought if we get through it I'm going to make it my mission so that no other parent feels like I do which is isolated ashamed alone unsure how to um, act and um, you know really impotent around their child's you know mental health um, so that was the start of it it took me about 10 months I think from that point and I started a Facebook group the following year by this point she was no longer suicidal she was out of school she was out of school for two years um, but at this point she was relatively stable and I figured that I was in a place where I could start to support other parents and so I started a Facebook group and it was very very small for a long time um, then in 2018 Facebook actually selected me as one of their top 100 community leaders from around the world and put me on an amazing program of support and mentoring and um, uh, leadership training. And it kind of grew from there. And with their support, I have a mentor uh, from, from there who is amazing. And he basically said, you know, you're on a mission and you can formalize this so you can help more people. And so last year we got our charity status um, as well. Um, we now support around 15,000 parents or over 15,000 in the community. And there's another 10,000 that we support across digital channels and, um, you know, through our programs. So it was a, it started as a very real need in me. And then I looked and thought, this feels like it's an unspoken um, issue. And it's something that parents aren't prepared to kind of, you don't talk to your, your friends about it because they have no frame of reference. Mm. They've no understanding of, the fear that you feel they have no understanding of you know the the 
the, the sense of shame that you carry and they don't understand the fact that you're grieving a life that you thought you were going to live and you have no idea what is going to happen. It's not like a, a typical physical illness where, you know, take these pills and in six weeks you'll be okay or put this cast on and your bones will heal. You have no concept of where this is going. So you start on this open-ended journey of, of, of huge challenge, massive adversity, and you do it alone. And I decided that I just didn't want anybody else to go on that journey alone. So, you know, that's that's why we exist. And I feel now that, you know, we we definitely support parents to not feel alone and to see that they have massive power to influence their child's illness and how they approach it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an absolute honour to see the parents coming through this. And there are so many. I'm, we, we deal with the tip of the iceberg. Mm. So that's kind of how we how we got started and and where we see the work going, supporting more and more and more parents. That's incredible. What an amazing, amazing resource for not just the parent, for the whole family, because if the parents are resourced up and know how to look after themselves in amongst all that suffering and all that pain, they're going to be in such a stronger place to help their child, aren't they? as they move forwards. If you were speaking, well, you are speaking to parents now who are going through these difficulties, what was it that they would, would happen when they came on your platform? What, 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 what does that look like? Well, there's a number of ways that we can support them. Uh, we have a, an open support forum on Facebook uh, where they can come and share any of their experiences and be met with kindness uh, a lack of judgment and pure compassion. They don't meet with a lack of pure compassion. They get pure compassion, but they get a lack of judgment. Um, and, but we also have a number of programs in there. We run um, expert Q and A's. We have training programs around the, um, the methodology that I created when I supported Izzy, uh, which is called Partnering Not Parenting. Um, we also offer meetups. We have listening circles. There's lots of ways for them to kind of I think making sense of this experience is such a, a unique one, such a personal one. And so what we try and do is we offer them um, support in terms of, you know, look, here's a way you can integrate with the community straight away. But for many of our members, we might never actually see their, their name pop up mm -hmm. um, because what they're doing is they're assimilating as uh, information and knowledge and acceptance really of what they're going through while they're coming to terms with their own emotions around this. So for us, it's a very, there's no, it's not prescriptive. Um, we're very, like I say, compassionate around the experience. There's a lot of time. It's, there's no time boxing this. You're not going to get six sessions and we're going to chuck you away. This is about, you know, offering a space for the duration of your experience and for whatever comes up, you know, allowing people to feel angry, allowing them to be, um, to, to, to be grieving, allowing them to um, want to fight uh, allowing them to want to, you know, or to, or to break down. And I think whatever that experience is, we, we hold the space for that. And once, you know, we feel that people are safe, if they want to then explore some of the resources that we can offer them, you know, not just in terms of their own uh, sense of self, um, their own sense of um, like the strength that they bring to this, um, but also in terms of um, practical insights to help them to parent better and then connection with others because that connection with others 
is the one thing that can give you that sense of um, it's okay, I'm okay. You know, this, this experience that probably none of my friends will ever go through to the same extent, I hope not, but it's okay. I, I can go through that because somebody else understands it. And I, I think there's probably for every experience that a parent who's listening might be going through, there will be somebody who has had that experience too. I think it's just, it, it, it astounds me. Every time we talk about mental health on this podcast, which is every episode, <laughs> um, that we are a society that knows so little about the potentiality of what we are capable of as human beings. And I was watching, we were talking just before the podcast about the um, program that um, Roman um, Kemp made around the suicide of his friend um, that's on BBC, on the iPlayer. And he was just talking with other young people around, you know, just the complete lack of information about mental health that is just generally out there, you know, and that it's such a, a fear-based and taboo subject still for people to talk about, especially if you get into the realms of depression and suicide, you know, that is just not discussed. And he actually went into a school where they were talking to, and this was a junior school, they were talking to the children about how to express their feelings. And every, every class they check in with everybody and see how everybody is. And they put a smiley face or a not smiley face or, or I'm not so sure today face. So the teacher gets an idea about how they are. But the, the children in the group are actually being taught about depression about anxiety about high level stress about feelings that might feel of overwhelm or out of control and you just think this is basic 101 stuff that every human being should understand but we just don't talk about it do we and it's only been much more recently that and I think because of social media that people have actually got an avenue now to be able to say you know what I recognize this it's happening in my family, it's happening to me or it's happening to my child or I lived with a parent who, you know, had significant mental health problems and I didn't even understand what that meant at the time because it wasn't spoken about. And I think, you know, the fact that you're giving a voice to so many people is just so powerful, Suzanne, it really is. Um, how do you see, you know, the education of mental health within parent groups but also you know within schools how do you think that could be addressed or you know made made better in some way well that's a big big great but big question I think a big challenge um, if we start with parents I think the we've got to we've got to reflect on our role and I think so often we feel that our role is to fix and to make everything you know okay so we don't want the downsides to stuff. We don't want the adversity. We don't want the challenges. But actually going through that, you know, as we all know in life, you are going to have challenges. You are going to face adversity. So being open to that and being, you know, being open to what that can bring, good and bad, is really important because that's where we get resilient. That's how we, you know, we understand that we can get through things 
and we can be stronger and we can you know, really rely upon our own inner kind of strength. So I think the first thing for parents is really to look at uh, their child's um, well-being, emotional well-being, which is that, you know, we can't be happy in every moment and nor should we because we wouldn't appreciate um, the good times when they do come. Um, but also we wouldn't learn the skills to be able to deal with the difficult times. Um, but also then it's not our job to fix. Our job is to be effectively we're a custodian of a young person, a really wonderful, growing, nurturing young person who needs space. I, um, I, I love Alison Gopnik's work. She's, um, she's a writer, I think she's a psychologist who talks a lot about uh, gardening versus carpentry. So I think as parents, we need to start looking at uh, this as, as gardening, not carpentry. So we are, our child is a seed. They need the right conditions to be planted in. They need to be nurtured. They need the right light, the shade, the water, maybe some food. And it's not for us to determine where they grow. It's not for us to say, you are going to be a six foot sunflower that's gonna look like this. You know, maybe it'll end up as a blue tulip and how beautiful would that be? So I think it's really important that as parents, we step back from that role of knowing everything, being everything, and also step down from our assumptions and our expectations of our children because they're, they're growing up in a very different world to the one that we grew up in. And that's not because of, you know, we're old fuddy-duddies. That's because they live in, a, in an always-on world where everyone's got access to them. Um, thanks to technology, great and, you know, not so great in probably an equal measure. But I think our role as parents is really important to kind of step down from that sense of we've got to make everything right. You know, we definitely ended up on a, on a road less traveled and I'm so pleased we did. You know, we ran towards adversity as a family and we have got some amazing gifts out of it. And the, the gifts have come by setting down uh, what we should have done. So no, she doesn't have uh, the number of GCSEs that she would have had had she have carried on at school, but that's okay. It's opened a path up for, you know, Izzy to um, do go into a career that she, she loves and wants to, to go into. You know that that really is it brings her to life so I think we've got to be confident in our own abilities as parents we've got to step down from that um, position of authority which is what the whole partnering not parenting piece is and we've got to uh, trust our children and give them the space and the right conditions to grow saying all of that you know and it's such a tough job being a parent so then you know as if you haven't got enough on your plate already um, you've then got to you know, be able to monitor your child's moods, be able to just like, but be open to them, you know, the, the undulations of their, of their emotional state, you know, being a teenager, or being a young person is a really difficult thing to do. Your brain's still changing and growing. You've got all of these inputs in, you know, as parents, we have a really important role to play in terms of be, being that safe place, being that consistent and, um, you know, trustworthy force in our child's life. And I think sometimes just being there, being present, being uh, somewhere that they can go and just talk, you know, that not everything needs to be fixed, not everything needs to be resolved, not everything needs to be, you know, agreed and nailed down. Some fluidity, some flexibility, and also some kind of curiosity about what is going on in their worlds and what that means for them. You know, I think we can learn, so, I've learned so much from my children. And I think if we listen to our children a little bit more, 
and stop trying to fix it because you know we feel that that's our role as parents then there I think we can all learn something um so yeah and then when it comes into schools you know schools have got such a tough job at the moment you know particularly after lockdown there's all the kind of they're running alongside or on the tracks of you know that typical progression and actually what I've found as a human being is that progression is not linear wow. likewise you know mental health is not uh, linear at all some days it's great some days it's not so great you know how we can start to look at the continuum of mental health you know uh, it's you, it's need you're not mentally well or mentally ill there is like you know some days it's good some days it's not so good you know I think really you know baking in some of the practices that I'm sure you guys I mean, know all around you know um, you know setting your intentions having a safe space to be able to share um, yeah, just yeah, meditation. I mean, all of these tools that you can use. I think that's probably where schools are gonna gonna need to be. But equally, as a parent, respecting the fact that the school is doing a really difficult job, and I think more and more they're having to do more of the jobs of society. So they're having to. I spoke to somebody the other week who runs a charity that works with schools, and they were saying, you know, schools are now having to source uniforms. They're having to, you know, um, organize masks, and you know, obviously with, with COVID and. You know, they're having to take on a, a greater role. Um, so there's that. Uh, but I, I mean, to be honest with you, I think mental health needs to be something that we talk about more. We, you know, we, and that starts with us, doesn't it? That starts with us taking ownership of our own mental health. That, that's, uh, you know, setting aside or challenging our judgments around the stigma of not talking about it. I am very open. I will tell you my whole history, but I know that's not for everybody. Um, for me, vulnerability is a strength. I'm very open to talking about it but if you're not then maybe questioning yourself why you're not you know what is it that you know makes you feel unsafe by doing that and you know maybe that will start to unpick some of the reasons behind you know that lack of emotional safety that you might feel and that's the same for your children if you judge them if you everything's you know if they if they feel they're going to disappoint you I mean that's that's the worst thing as a parent is like you know or I think that's probably the worst thing as a kid, actually, is when your mum says, oh, oh, you've disappointed, I'm disappointed in you. I mean, that's just the worst thing to ever hear. But um, I think if you can create that space where you can make mistakes, where you can um, explore, you know, how you're feeling. I love what you said there about the school, asking young people how they're feeling. We did some work with the creative counsellors who um, use creativity because they say words are not enough, not always enough. Mm. And I think that's the case with us is like, we just need to look and say, in the moment, how are we doing? Um, you know, taking it one day at a time, looking at the ways that we need, to, you know, the inputs we need as a human being and, uh, and not judging ourselves, you know, setting aside that judgment because I think some of the greatest, most interesting, most wonderfully creative people are, will, will have suffered with their mental health because they are human beings, because we all suffer with our mental health. Yeah. I really, I really concur with everything you're saying. And uh, there's a couple of things. Um, first, first one being, um, I wonder why we are so afraid to say I'm not okay. Because people are. Like what, what, that's a deeper question. I don't know the answer. I'm just throwing it out there. Why is it not okay to say, actually, I'm really not okay today. I'm, not, I'm struggling. It's rare. I mean, if you were to say that to someone who bumped into in the street, oh, how are you? And so actually really not good. I'm feeling really low and down. Like they, they look petrified, literally petrified, unless they were a bit more switched on, maybe they'd experienced people with poor mental health 
or they had struggled with it themselves. So is it shame? Is it not feeling like you know what to say next? Is it that whole everything needs to be tidy and fixed and are we, you know, we're very resolution driven as a society versus more permissive? I mean, in mindfulness practice, which is kind of one of my main focuses, we speak a lot about there being um, a, a continuum of experience. So you have, you might be feeling in physical or emotional distress, but what else is present? That's not the only thing that's present. There is something else that might be taking up 20%, 30%, 95%, 99%, but what else is present? And, and if we sit with it for a little while, what, what else shows up for you? And what resources do you have to draw on? And, and we speak a lot about, you know, about that continuum, but also about, you know, what can we put in place to support ourselves? So never dismissing your arising experience, however that looks, but at the same time, putting stuff in place that's going to give you a framework in which to look at it and, and hold yourself, which is very important. I don't know how you feel about that. What do you feel? Why do you feel people? Daniel, you're going to say something. I was just going to say that I think by asking that question, how are you today? You need to be prepared for whatever response may come out of someone's mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's such a throwaway thing that we ask people and we answer. Mm -hmm. And on that documentary that I watched yesterday with um, Roman Kemp, he was talking a lot about that and just saying, actually, are you prepared for what that person may say? Mm. And that actually that question is probably the most important thing that you can ever ask someone. Everything else is kind of irrelevant if that person says, no, I'm not okay. Mm. <laughs> but we're so busy to get on with the tasks or the jobs or the reason that we've met that person or to spill our own stuff that actually we don't take the time to, 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 listen to that slight indication that actually they might not be okay and that what I loved about what Roman said was ask people are you okay and they will normally say yes and then you say to them well are you okay <laughs> and just by asking that question twice you might get a very different response the second time and I just thought it's such an effective way of checking in with people but to be the person that's asking needs to needs to know that they're okay with what may be said back and I think you know that's responsibility for us all to 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 go and learn or to go and understand our own mental capacity and our own mental health or what that looks like and know that actually, you know, there are certain things you can do to help people, but also it might just be, okay, they've told me something, this is what I need to do next. And that, again, isn't anything that I don't think the general public know necessarily. You know, it, it's, it's, it's something that normally happens in a crisis. What would you say, or do you, I mean, Suzanne, from your point of view, I've, I've got things that I could say about it, but I'm, I'm curious about what you're going to say. What would you say if someone says, I'm not okay, what, what would you say to say next? What do you, what's your suggestion? Well, I think, I think that sense of being present, you know, being that safe space and not being rushing off, not looking at your phone, not, you know, 
looking over their heads. I think that you've got you've got to be in a place where when you come and ask that question, are you okay? And again, are you really okay? You need to be in a place where you can offer that safe space, where you can offer them that time so that they can offload and that they can feel safe about that. But I think it depends on, you know, the there are lots of stories of people stopping people from uh, attempting suicide, you know, in that moment, sometimes it's not somebody that you know that you want, it's just somebody that cares. And I think we can all care, can't we? And that moment we can all sit with someone and then follow up with them or, you know, signpost them to some services if that's appropriate. But I think that connection with uh, people is just the really important part there. I think that's, you know, it's, it's, that's a bit of a, that's not really an ideal answer. I think it's, you know, in the moment you have to assess what, what is required. But I think what we always need is a sense that we're being heard and seen and that we're being taken seriously and, and that our emotions, you know, are important and how we're feeling is valid and valuable. Mm. I, I know that in, in my experience as a therapist, um, often people say at the end of the session, it felt incredible to be heard. Just that, because there is no, I mean, I may give practical advice if it's appropriate after they've explored their feelings, but to be given the space just to say their truth. And that sometimes can be a big shift for them because maybe they haven't verbalized it. So they're just sitting with all this turmoil inside themselves, but they've not given voice to it. But to be just held and acknowledged and to have the person sitting opposite you reflect back and acknowledge how painful that might be for them or how challenging that might be and to have some empathy so I think, as you said, being present is so important. Having the time, making the time and space to have to have that empathy, because often people are are just thinking while they're in the conversation about what they're going to say to make this go away because they're feeling uncomfortable. And I think that's something that might be worth exploring a little bit. Is that if you feel uncomfortable when someone tells you they're not okay, that's perhaps an indication that you could do with some work yourself. Are you not okay with not being okay? Because let's be frank, no one is okay all the time. If you think you are, you're deluded, to be frank, because no one is okay all the time. You can't possibly be okay all the time living in the human world with all the suffering that, that, is, that is our experience as human beings. So I, I think coming back to the work that you're doing with parents, you know, as a parent myself with children, and, you know, I come from a family with a long line of mental health challenges. Um, I, I know that I have to be resourced up to deal with the situations that might arise from right through from my childhood to present time. And I, I will know if I'm not resourced because I won't be able to hold that person's, I can't be with them. And then I know, well, I've clearly not looked after myself very well, because if I'm looking after myself, well, I've got the space to, to hold you while you have your experience. So what advice do you give to parents um, and family members who come on to your, um, your digital community and to the work that you're doing about how they can really look after themselves so that they can be greater supports for their family? Yeah. Well, 
uh, I think the, the first thing that we tell parents is that you're the blueprint for your child. There's so many uh, parents that feel that they can't take care of themselves because that's being selfish or that that's taking away from the care and energy that they might put into their, into their child and, and the situations that they face. But the first thing we say is that you are the blueprint for your child. So your child is gonna be watching you even if they don't look like they're watching you, but you are showing them how to treat, how they can treat, how they should treat themselves um, as a person, as a human being. So it's absolutely essential that you do take care of yourself. And that's not just bubble baths and avocados, that is in setting boundaries, that is in how you physically take care of yourself, you know, and, and um, in terms of how you manage your time, the amount of stress you take on board. And, you know, your relationships as well. So we definitely see that, or we, we, we say to parents, you know, you have immense power to influence the way your child feels about themselves through your own behavior. But also that self-care, you know, that which has been like turned into some kind of, like I say, avocados and bubble baths is absolutely essential. And so what we advocate is that if you're in a crisis, that you need more self-care, not less. So you might feel that you've got no time for it, but actually you have a greater need. So you need to be able to try and prioritize that in some way. And that might be 10 minutes a day. That might be 10 minutes before, you know, the house wakes up or it might be, um, you know, 10 minutes, 10 times a day. It doesn't matter when it is. If you have to break it down to make it part of it, fit into your world and be a part of your life, then please do that. But I think it's also about, you know, again, stepping down from those expectations, you know, I'm a 49 year old woman, so I shouldn't be having a nap in the middle of the day. Well, who said so? If that's what you need, you go off and have that nap. I mean, you know, seriously, I'm there with you. If watching, you know, three series of whatever program on Netflix is the way that you're gonna, you know, decrease all of your stress levels, then you go and do that. I think stepping away from the judgment of, goes back to your previous question, Dawn, really, about why are we in this place where we can't say we're okay? And that's, I think, because we're seeking some form of perfection that somebody somewhere probably never even said that none of us can live up to, that really doesn't serve us. It doesn't, it doesn't enrich us in any way. It just takes away from that sense of peace that we can get in ourselves. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's about saying to parents, you know, understanding you are part of the solution for your child's, uh, you, you know, to, to make your child feel better not necessarily about fixing because we can't fix because it's not only their experience, but it is a continuum. But to improve things and the harmony and the connection in your home, you need to take care of yourself. So do that in small ways. Build rituals into your, uh, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about that, you know, build rituals into your day, whether that's your favorite kind of drink in the morning in your favorite cup at a time where, you know, you sit just alone, peaceful, uh, for a few moments or whether that's like a weekly call with your friend that is like your your time that's something that you carve out for yourself and it sounds you know that sounds a bit self-care you know just avocados and bubble baths but it's so important to have that time where you're you where you're not a parent where you're where you know where you're dawn where I'm Suzanne and we just kind of chew the cud over whatever that yeah. takes away the kind of the pressure of parenting a young person with a mental health issue because it can become all-consuming so it's really important to take yourself out of those situations. And it's not selfish because you will come back. You'll have emptied your stress bucket. You'll have more compassion, more patience, more time. And everyone will benefit if you take care of yourself. I think it's such an important thing for everybody to remember, you know, parents or not, that so many of us turn to these types of support while we're in crisis. And actually, we won't be in crisis forever. 
However, it's really important to remember what you've learned in that crisis to actually continue to do in the non-crisis times, which actually there'll be far many more than when you're in crisis. And just having that little bit of self-care each day will then give you some resilience to be able to deal with the next crisis that comes. And whether that's a family crisis, whether that's a personal crisis, whatever that is and however that manifests, you've got something to fall back on. And I, I, I see so many people in crisis coming for therapy. And I'm, it, it, it's a bit like, there's only so much we can ever do <laughs> because, you know, you're so anxious, you're so stressed, you can't, you can't, you know, you, you're just scratching the tip of that iceberg. And actually, you know, the importance I, I've found is to just find those things that people feel, give them that connection to themselves and try and embed them into everyday life and let them become the same as brushing your teeth, you know, and getting in a pair of pajamas to go to bed or whatever, however you sleep, you know, just let them become, like you've said, a ritual that doesn't feel like you're taking away from the rest of the family or those that you love or support. It's actually something that enriches that relationship rather than is something that you feel is taking away time or energy away from 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 them or that definitely and i think all self-care needs to be additive it needs to add some element of joy connection delight you know peace space whatever it is to your life so if you look at self-care as an additive thing rather than as something that takes away and i think we're really good as parents and people generally at focusing on that so i think for me the um the the kind of starting point for it was to say I'm enough and I'm worthy and I think if you struggle with self-care you know I'm enough I am worthy it's just a really great place to start which is you are enough you are this isn't you're not doing this because you're rubbish you're doing this because you are enough and you need to keep retain that and you are worthy of this time because you're a human being and you deserve that that sense of um you know that sense of connection with yourself in that space so I'm completely with you I think it's you know, the more we can build it in. And I think hopefully, you know, schools as well, there's that sense of, there's always this sense of um, forward motion that we've always got to be achieving. And actually sometimes we just need to be quiet and still. And I read um, uh, a great article on uh, Steve Jobs and Einstein, you know, one of those ones that you hit on social media, but basically that they spent a lot of time, they had lots of unscheduled time and that's where they were most creative and, and they became most productive because they had that unscheduled time. So I think being happy and comfortable sitting with your own thoughts takes practice. It definitely does, because sometimes, you know, you don't want to hear what's coming up. And to Vaughan's point before about therapy, I would advocate that everybody goes and gets therapy because, you know, we are we need it. You know, you wouldn't just run your car for the rest of its lifetime and, and never service it or look after it. So, yeah, I think uh, I think therapy is definitely I, I love I hate and love therapy in equal measure. <laughs> I was thinking um, that it might be worth just exploring just briefly that what's physiologically happening when something shocking like your child or family member is, develops a, um, poor mental health. And I think as the receiver, when somebody we love is in such turmoil, we respond and there is a, there's, a neuro, there's a neurological thing going on. It's called mirror neurons. But beyond that, we respond also by going into fight, flee, or freeze. 
So neurologically, we just go, we can go into this complete panic mode where we don't know what to do next. And then, you know, adrenaline and cortisol is released in the body, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure shoots up and, and our brain literally, it, it moves into kind of like a linear lens. So we stop seeing things in a global way. So things like empathy and compassion all are pushed to the background because they aren't needed for your survival in that moment. You feel like you're physically in some kind of genuine risk of life. Um, and, and, and that's when the knowledge to pause and ground and take a moment and step back and feel and allow yourself to have all the feelings, whether that be panic, fear, sadness, guilt, shame, I don't know what to do. And then you can, and then once that's expressed, those, those, um, that, that thing that's happening, that release of cortisol, that increased heart rate, that panic survival mode dampens. And then our empathy comes in and the, the creative space that you were just talking about, we become creative over our responses and our ability to hold the space for others. And I think it's really useful to notice that because actually, I don't know that people always realize that they've gone into that space that I'm oh like, God, I've frozen. And, the, and I've seen parents and brothers and sisters and grandparents and friends who stay in that space throughout the whole of the time the person they love is in crisis. And, and then they're projecting and they're, they're stuck in that space of not what's happening right now, but what they're terrified is going to happen next week or next year or where their life's going to look in 30 years rather than which is actually not helpful. It's not helpful to them and it's not helpful to you. Rather than using... Um, this kind of these skill sets that are available to us where we can go I'm feeling all of this pain myself and I'm going to make space for it and I'm going to bring in a grounding practice walk on the beach have a bath meditate call a friend have a hot cup of tea something that's going to bring you out of the overactive doing phase of the mind into the being space of the mind which is more creative and more useful mm. and I think it's useful to hear that because you maybe don't know it's so useful to hear that. It's so important as well, I think, sometimes to extract the emotion from the kind of science or the physiological, or the physical. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes people judge themselves on the fact that they feel this way and they can't suddenly, you know, be the leader in that situation or they don't know what to do. And actually looking at it and saying, look, this is a physiological response that I have no control over in terms of it happening, but I do have control over how I respond to it. Yeah. And I think also giving yourself permission to take that moment, step down. You know, I always used to say I, I lived one, one day at a time and some days I lived one hour at a time and some days I lived one moment at a time. And I think, you know, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's, well, living in the moment's really difficult, I think, when you, because you are projecting forward about what's going to, what mm -hmm. might happen and all the what ifs, because there, there you are, you're in your fixed mode. You want to be the one that's going to make it all okay, but. I'm so pleased you shared that because I think that's something that we don't reflect enough on that actually we are in a stress situation and we are carrying that and I definitely think trauma as well you know I know that there's a lot of our um, a lot of the families that we work with end up with um, you know CPTSD because of their experiences and diminish it because they they're saying well you know uh, well I haven't been to war which is the you know the typical PTSD response but they haven't seen that actually the things that they've seen, they shouldn't have seen. Wow. And that does have an impact and it does layer onto their um, experience. Yeah. I, and if I, you, Sorry, Daniel, go on. I was just going to say, I, I completely agree with what you've said, Suzanne, just sort of 
a little bit of my personal background, I experienced um, homophobic bullying through school and lived in a state of fear and anxiety probably until I was about 30. So about 12 years of my life, 14 years of my life was, you know, I was, I was almost in a state of either extreme trying to get away from everything or just in a complete place of fear. And it wasn't until I understood the physiological process of what was happening that I could start to then understand, actually, this is just a response that is happening within me. And it happens within everybody. And everyone's experience of it is different. However, you can't stop it happening. <laughs> but what you can do is learn how to nurture yourself after it's happened. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was the fundamental, that was the point where I was like, okay, I can get over this PTSD that I've experienced because I know how to self-nurture myself. And no one could teach me that. I had to learn that for myself. And it took years of talking, trying things out through, you know, all the, all the avenues, drugs, alcohol, relationships, sex, work, you know, all, I didn't try gambling. I've never really got that. That's about the only one that I didn't do. <laughs> um, more recently, social media, you know, <laughs> but actually all of that stuff that we find to distract ourselves away from that place of fear. And, and I, I literally just, I, I can't express to people enough, talk to other people about it because they will be able to share their experiences with you and find the ways that you can nurture yourself. And by learning how to nurture yourself, then you can start to make some sense of it. And that could be through therapy, that could be through yoga, that could be through self-care of taking time out for yourself, but talking to friends, it doesn't matter what it is, but it's just being able to express what is happening in some way in a safe environment. Yeah, that's so important. And I think as well, what you said there about learning to self-nurture. I think we, 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 we kind of expect self-care, self-knowledge, self-nurture to be spoon-fed to us. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's a personal journey of self-discovery. And the whole point is, is that it's unique to you. So you have to be prepared to go on that journey with yourself. And it's taken me decades to get to that point where I'm, you know, I'm on a journey with myself. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know when it will end. I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's, it's, I think bringing that sense of curiosity about what you can learn about yourself um, is, is a really brave act, isn't it? Because, you know, there's a lot um, that we all go through that we, there are multi-layered experiences that, that won't necessarily seem to be uh, ones that, add up to PTSD, but they do make us who we are and they do um, color and um, influence our reactions. So I I love that. I love that sense of going on a journey with yourself. I think it's really important and understanding that what might work for you isn't necessarily going to work for me either. And being okay with that, you know, if my self-care is completely different to you, if I, if my self-nurture in those moments is a different response, then that's okay. It's, it's what works for you because you are an individual. I think I would just like to kind of um, and re- re- just reinforce to parents who are listening and people with 
who are dealing with people in their orbit who've got challenging mental health everything's impermanent i just want to really nail that home you might be in the eye of the storm right now and living in absolute terror of what could happen and as you said right at the beginning your guilt and shame and everything else that's going on for you but in a moment it can all change and if we've made the space for feeling all the feels for you and for the other person great wisdom and strength can come out of that because one of the things in mindfulness practice we talk about is that the changes happen in the brain not by us not having thoughts but by noticing the thoughts and then coming back to our object of meditation which is a breath or a sound or whatever we choose it to be but it's that moment where we go from one thing back to something else that something happens to the brain neurology where gray matter grows and we develop resilience etc cetera, etc cetera. and in the same way i feel that by making this space for the stuff that's happening in the moment with the people the community that's having this chat these challenging challenges we develop the resilience through those experiences so not seeing them it's so catastrophic it's just seeing them as an expression of that moment everything that's gone before has brought you to that moment you have the skill set to allow it to be by not suppressing it by not changing it by not apportioning blame and then in the next moment something else is possible and i find that when i read about this and i started to understand that that really helped me to deal with the mental health challenges that were i was experiencing in my in my life and in the wider my wider community that I, that I was living in. So I just wanted to share that. I don't know how you feel about that thought. I think that's a really powerful and heartening and nurturing and warm thing to share. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I, life definitely changes. I think the, in the same way as we, in that the impermanence of what we're going through is, is a gift for us really and I think that's something that definitely our community responds to that things will definitely change mm. and even though you can't ever believe it sometimes you just have to hold on to hope don't you um, and I also think as a parent as a person you know there's that sense of um, uncovering your power inside you that 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 belief that you will get through this mm. and that's why I think community is so important you know community is the space that you can go to when you don't believe yourself and they can lift you up and remind you that actually oh, do you know what? I remember when things were different last week or because we're all very good, aren't we, at going to the negative and, and going to that sort of worst case scenario. So uh, I definitely think that, you know, remembering that definitely things change is, is, is really great advice, Dawn, and a good reminder for everybody. And not just parents or people yeah. with mental health issues. It's like for life, isn't it, really? That's great advice for life. Yeah, definitely. God, we could talk for hours. There's so much more to say, but we have to round things up. We're coming to the end of our time. I, I wanted to just ask, uh, which we ask everybody who joins us, who's kind enough to come and share their wisdom. What is it that you do for your self-care? And if that is bubble baths and avocados, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> At the same time, bubble, bubble bath and an avocado mask. <laughs> Okay, I haven't tried that, but I might put that on my list now, actually. Honey, avocado and oats. That's what my girls use on their skin or have. Used on their skin. Apparently so. Apparently so. I'll have a go. Knowing me, I'd end up, I don't know, just, well, it'll end up in a soggy mess. But um, 
I, so my self-care for me is time on my own. And that's really important. I'm an only child. I like my own company and I feel connected to many thousands of people the whole time. So it's really important to me that every day I have some time on my own, switch off from, um, you know, devices and go, whether that's for a walk, uh, whether that's to sit in a room on my own and just be alone. That's a really important thing for me. Um, but again, that ritual that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, if I don't have that time in the morning where I have my tea, my favorite cup, I look at the tree, I take my, I have drink some water, I set my intentions, I breathe. I just have a few moments just to kind of let everything settle because otherwise it's just always busy, busy, busy. So um, they're, they're really important for me. In terms of nurturing things, I love, um, I love to read. Um, I love to just just learn and read but I think you know when you when you want to help people and support people that can become not an obligation as such but it can become you can be diverted from the things that really nurture you and, and lift you up so um, I try and um, read uh, detective novels like Agatha Christie I, I'm a massive Agatha Christie fan so I kind of revisit those watch Poirot box sets and uh, you know immerse myself in 1920s art deco but um, yeah that's pretty much me. I've been listening to um, Poirot on talk um, audiobooks at night time. I've not been I've not been sleeping very well recently. It's menopausal sleep deprivation, one of the other things to look forward to in your menopause. And so I find that I, I listen to that and every night. So I'm on I'm on about my tenth book. I didn't know there were so many. I thought it was only about six. There's lo loads of them. There's hundred. Didn't she write? I think she wrote over a hundred novels. So yeah, there's there's so many to go for. Yeah, I, I'm actually listening to a short story at the moment, uh, uh, an Agatha Christie short story before I go to bed. I get to about I think it's an hour and ten minutes, and I've done about twelve. That's all I get to. So I don't know whether you're the same. Just end yes. up rereading or re-listening to the same section. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to um, the remake of Murder on the Nile. Because oh, did, did you see the Orient Express remake that they yeah. did? And I just, well, I, I was so lucky that for my mum's 60th, we took her to Egypt and we did the whole Nile cruise from Luxor down, no, yeah, from Luxor to Aswan and then back up to Luxor again. And we got to actually sit in the hotel and see the places she actually wrote. The, the novel so to go and to watch it again but in a with a kind of modern take on it you know because the, the the new film that they did of of the Orient Express was so good wasn't it it was so so kind of atmospheric and because a lot of the the actors and actresses you knew them as well so there was a kind of that familiarity with them it just yeah I'm really excited about seeing it but um yeah, uh, that, I think that's my favourite Agatha Christie murder on the Nile. <laughs> they, when you went down the Nile, I've, it's like one of my fantasies, and I don't think it's ever going to happen because my husband just doesn't want to go to Egypt because he's convinced we're going to be ter be victims of terrorism. So um, I doubt we're going to get to go. But did you, I just have this fantasy of like wearing an evening dress, sitting on the deck, having a cocktail. Did you do that? Yeah, it's exactly that. So... So the boats are quite small that you go on. 
So it is like an Agatha Christie novel. You get to know everyone on the boat. <laughs> you sit oh with you sit with people on the boat and you get to know them and they have certain nights where you have to dress up or you dress down or, you know, they kind of... But, it, yeah, it was very... It's such a special, special place. It's almost like... Well, it is. It's like going back in time. Oh. It's the only way you can describe it. There's no, the only sounds when you're on the knoll that you can hear is the boat and then just people sort of living on the, on the banks of the knoll and there's no, there's no kind of other noise. It's so, it's such a strange, surreal experience. There wasn't any murders there, was there? No, but weirdly, when we did go, me and my dad were kind of, me and my dad were always a bit inquisitive and we had like our sun loungers towards the back of the boat and there was this big screen. We went round the corner and there was a machine gun on the back of the boat. <laughs> was that for crocodiles? Was that for crocodiles? No. <laughs> I don't know. It definitely wasn't for crocodiles. Oh, my goodness. What no, we were that? like, this feels a little bit surreal. Sunbathing next to a machine gun. <laughs> oh, my God. It was oh a little God. one. It was attached to the back of the boat. So they could, you know, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to let my husband listen to this podcast because then we'll <laughs> never, ever go on the Nile, ever. But do you know what? I I don't know what it's like at the moment, but if you ever get the opportunity, go and do it. It was the most amazing thing. And I've, I've, I said to my mum and dad, I'd love to go and do it with them again, you know, because there's so much to go and see. Like the Valley of the Kings in itself is just mind-blowing. You know, we went in the pyramids. We got to go in the, you know, the 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 Great Pyramid. Wow! Got locked in it. That was terrifying. Got locked in <laughs> on purpose? No, they shut the door. Oh my god! Did they forget you were in there? It was utterly terrifying. <laughs> you could have been in there like overnight until someone came. It, it it was only lunchtime, but they basically they were just like, "Are you are you the last people?" and just slammed the door shut, and it was like we're locked in this pyramid and there might not be anyone else in here. And I don't know where we're supposed to be going. It was, it was so, it was, yeah, just, yeah. Completely oh amazing. Oh my God. Even like when we went to the museum, like the Egyptian museum, there's these relics that literally, you know, thousands and thousands of years old. And if it was in a UK museum, you know, they'd be all labeled in boxes and you can't get near them. You just stumble over them, you know, like kick them forward. <laughs> it was the most bizarre, bizarre place. But, you know, just there's so much of it that they don't even know what to do with it, you know. And so much has been lost as well because of, you know, so much... Thievery. ...stuff that's been going on, you know. But, yeah, it's an amazing place. Utterly amazing. Wow. Cool. Well, oh. thank you so much for joining us. That was a nice little... Is it an addendum, an add on the end? An addendum? That's it. Look at that. How clever am I? That was a nice little addendum. Do you want to tell our listeners what's coming up, Daniel? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Suzanne, first of all, for your time today and just for this amazing gift that you've given to so many families of just being able to connect with each other. We forgot to mention that Suzanne's written a book as well called Never Let Go, which... um, we will post when we send out the podcast as well. Um, but thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been amazing. I think we could have talked all day. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you.
You're so welcome. So um, you can find the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Um, if you enjoyed what we're doing, please do leave us a review and let us know. Um, if you want us to include anybody else or you have any feedback, please do let us know. We're constantly needing to hear from you so we can grow this podcast into, into what you would like to be hearing rather than just what Dawn and I like to talk about. <laughs> um, in the next couple of weeks, we've got um, a podcast all around um, hypermobility. We've got another podcast all around yoga and the support for people who are experiencing cancer, um, families or, or people or individuals that may have cancer. Um, so some things to look forward to. Um, I'm also chatting to a couple of people from the States around um, another podcast on Yoga Nidra. So um, watch this space. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Dawn. And we'll look forward to being here again with you very soon. Thank you.